So we um, looked earlier at uh, the thought that one of the most important contributions of the Christian contemplative tradition to the universal wisdom about meditation is that it is universal that we are all called to this. This was highlighted in the Second Vatican Council, the universal call to holiness. It didn't matter what form of vocation, what way you followed Christ, but you, we were all, we are all called to the same fullness of experience of God. And perhaps the other special contribution of the Christian contemplative tradition to the spiritual family of, of humanity is that the simple deep insight that contemplation is the work of love. And the focus on that is very, very definite within throughout the Christian mystical tradition. Love penetrates to the root of everything and changes everything it touches, even at the physical level. There's a lot of research, you can find it on the internet, uh, into the physical, psychological benefits of meditation. Meditation is good for your blood pressure, it's good for your, what, immune system, it's good to help you sleep better at night, uh, and so on and so on doesn't restore your hair, but it does all these other <laughs> great things. Okay, so we can measure that and we can um, benefit from that. So these are the benefits of meditation. And I don't think we should uh, you know, dismiss those as unimportant. They are the signs or the sacraments. If we see the body as a sacrament, of the, the person, the, the visible, tangible, celebratory form of the person. So the, the sacrament of the body is obviously going to show signs and wonders uh, of the, the, what is happening at the spiritual level. And we'll come back to this idea of the, the inner and the outer in a moment. So, but if we focus only on the benefits of contemplation, then we, 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 we get a rather, we're rather short, given short change. As well as the benefits of meditation, we also have the fruits, the spiritual fruits, the harvest of the spirit, what um, St. Paul calls love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fidelity, gentleness, and self-control. And we can immediately see that these qualities are, you know, more essentially human than your blood pressure, uh, and that they are not so easily measured. You can recognize them, feel them, and communicate them. They're all about forms of relationship or communication. 
So these fruits of the Spirit in the Christian vision would be the, the signs within our humanity, within our human personality, uh, of the life of God growing and expanding and changing us and transforming us or divinizing us in the process. So, it's okay, we can, we can measure the benefits, uh, but there's, there's a lot more to the contemplative uh, reality than that. And the Bible, the biblical vision of the human, is, uh, affirms this. The, the, the Bible does not have a dualistic model of the human being, such as the Greeks did. The Greeks saw body and mind as the, the great duality. And later this became uh, fixed as a kind of prison, in a way. The, the, the spirit or the mind was locked into the body. And the body was, you know, uh, kept us down to earth in a negative sense. It prevented us from, from expanding and fulfilling our potential. But the biblical vision of humanity is very different from that. That is that uh, the body and the mind, the body and the, it also contains the, the mystery or is contained within the mystery of the spirit. And the spirit is one, oneness. Where the spirit is, there is freedom, freedom from the divisions and the limitations that we experience inevitably in life. So the spirit uh, is added to this duality and it transforms it. Body and mind are both touched by the spirit. So the body is spiritualized. Tayyad de Chardin said matter is spirit, what did he say? Matter is spirit incandescent, no sorry, spirit is matter incandescent. And we have this idea, of the, the, we see this idea expressed in the transfiguration of Jesus, we, of course, and above all, in the resurrection and the ascension and the Christian doctrine of, of the body of Christ. Jesus doesn't cease to be physical, be a body. Even still contains the, it shows in the resurrection appearances the, the wounds. So the biblical understanding of the human being is not that the spirit or the soul or the mind is trapped in the body, but there is, on the other hand, a, a struggle, there is a tension in the human person. It's not a tension or opposition so much between the body and the mind, but it's the struggle between the reality of love, the reality of divine love, and human fantasy, human idolatry, the human tendency to to mess it up, to prefer illusion and fantasy to the real. So this is the, this is the essential tension, I think, in the, in the biblical understanding of the person rather than just body and mind 
slogging it out until the spirit is released from the body. And so, again, in the Christian understanding, the, the way to deal with this tension, this opposition, the struggle between reality and fantasy, uh, we see we see the inability of the disciples to recognize the risen Jesus. Of course, even to recognize Jesus before he died, to really see, to know that to see him was to see the Father. They misinterpreted him from the beginning, even as they were getting to know him. So, the way in the Christian tradition that we deal with this tension between reality and fantasy is to bring the mind into the heart. That's the great healing work of prayer, and it's the, what we mean by, I think, the contemplative vision. So, to bring the mind into the heart, how the, how, um, the Orthodox uh, Christian tradition speaks about prayer, the prayer of the heart, the mind is brought into the heart, it's not turned off, it's not destroyed, it's not rejected, but it is transfigured and transformed by its powers, uh, by uh, being brought into this deep center of the human person that we call the heart that is much more than just emotion and feeling, as we have in the Western troubadour kind of tradition reduced the heart to just feeling and, and emotion. Um, but the heart, spiritually, in all traditions, is the point of integration and wholeness. It's the dynamic point of the human, where every aspect of our humanity is in harmony and in the right relationship uh, to, to, to each other. And in this sense, then, we call meditation the prayer of the heart and it's the prayer of the whole person. And so, if it is the prayer, if it's the touching, if it's the uh, enjoyment of the whole person that we are, we're touching into a wholeness, holiness, at the deepest center of our being, and that's where healing happens. And so we see that the, the whole sort of redemptive story of, of the gospel is, is, is actually lived out uh, within the inner journey that we make. That the, the healing of the wounds of division takes place within ourselves. And if it doesn't take place within ourselves, then the external forms of those divisions, those wounds, those struggles, those racial prejudice, social class conflict, and so on, so all of those remain unresolved, unhealed. We have to heal the world from within ourselves. And that's again an affirmation. We see it in the Gospel of how central the contemplative experience is to our work of bringing, trying to bring the kingdom of God upon earth.
trying to make the world conform better than it does to the kingdom of God at the moment. And so, again, in the same uh, wisdom, tradition, the, this prayer of the heart heals the crack, the many cracks, more than one crack, heals the many cracks within us. And in fact, maybe even the deeper we go, the more cracks we find. Uh, it heals these, these cracks with the power of love. And the light is love. It also creates community in the process. We can see that community, a, a, a deeply loving, spiritually awakened community, will understand what contemplation means. And a contemplative, even living on the top of a mountain or in a cave, who is truly contemplative, is going to feel in communion with the world, will know what community means. And it creates community because the inner world shapes the outer world. In the Gospel of Thomas, copy this somewhere. Uh, the saying number 22 is, uh, is this. Gospel of Thomas is uh, a collection of sayings of Jesus. Uh, some of them appear in the canonical Gospels. Many of them seem to be expansions on, of the saying of Jesus to be very much reflections of his teaching, but it doesn't have a canonical authority, but uh, in the early church, it was treated with great respect. Jesus saw some little ones nursing, being fed at the breast. He said to his disciples, these little ones who are nursing resemble those who enter the kingdom. The nursing child resembles us who are going into the kingdom. And they said to him, so does this mean that we enter the kingdom by being little ones, babies? And Jesus said to them, when you make the two one and make the inside like the outside and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, and that you might make the male and the female be one and the same, so that the male might not be male, nor the female be female. When you make eyes in place of an eye and a hand in place of a hand and a foot in place of a foot, an image in place of an image, then you will enter the kingdom. So I think we, when we hear that, we can't help but think of St. Paul, um, that in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. 
So here is a, an expression of that, uh, of the kingdom of God, or our experience of the kingdom of God, as manifesting, being realized, as the healing of all divisions takes place. So, this is, this is then how Clement of Alexandria in the second century refers to this um, uh, saying, which, he, which must have been passed on as part of some oral tradition. He called it the gospel according to the Egyptians. When Salome asked when she would know the answer to her questions, the Lord said, when you trample on the robe of shame, and when the two shall be one, and the male with the female, and there is neither male nor female. And he says, in the first place, we have not got the saying in the four Gospels that have been handed down to us, but in this Gospel according to the Egyptians. So, this, uh, this very, uh, this is a kind of an expansion of what Jesus says about and maybe it's uh, not related to his own exact words or, or sayings, but uh, it seems to be an expansion of the meaning of unless you become like a little child. Certainly it takes its starting point from that saying of Jesus. And the other saying, of course, where he says that the, the, the mysteries of the kingdom are revealed not to the clever and the learned, but to the little ones. So, the inner and the outer becoming one. Maybe this, is the, this is the healing. And what is it healing? It's healing uh, this stage of our development, maybe our evolution, in which we are still bound to the external divisions, and that these divisions inevitably, unless they're treated, become causes of conflict. Once we see that Jesus has overcome the world, as he says in the Gospel of John, and the world means this state of division, and the conflicts that arise from the division and the stereotypical positions we take up with regard to people who are different from us or divided from us because of race or creed or age or sexuality or anything else. Once we see that Jesus has overcome this world of division, then we experience a freedom was the beginning of our own liberation to shape the external world anew in, with a new vision. Anyone who is united to Christ, there is a new creation. And it is recreated in the form and the image of the interior world, in the world of the spirit where there is no division where there is oneness. Nothing is lost in this great union, 
this great oneness. Nothing is lost except the conflict and the dividedness. Everything that is male, everything that is female, everything that is black, everything that is white, everything that is, you know, whatever, is, 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 is contained in it, in this wholeness, the fullness, the pleroma of Christ, but uh, what is lost and, or transcended and what it gets dissolved are the conflicts and the dividedness and the imprisonment of our senses uh, within that world of division. And this is the heart. This is, this is what we mean by the heart. It, it is in the heart that this new creation is formed, is discovered. The kingdom of heaven is within you. And when you discover that the kingdom of heaven is within you, then you can also see that the kingdom of heaven is among you, among us. That's what Jesus says when he's asked about the kingdom of heaven. He says you can't observe it externally. You can't say here it is or there it is. It's beyond these dualities of here and there or up and down or in and out. And so what he says in, in, in the Greek can be translated either as the kingdom of heaven is within you or the kingdom of heaven is among you. And that ambiguity, paradox, is, expresses the, the reality of the kingdom. The heart, therefore, remains a mystery. We are a mystery to ourselves. I thank you, Lord, for the wonder of my being, it says in the Psalms. The heart is much more than emotion or feeling, although those are included, and liberated, but, and only God can understand the heart, as Jeremiah says, the heart is, 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 a, is imponderable to our human understanding, our own heart, our own center, our own wonder, and only God can understand it. Meditation, the, the contemplative work, frees us then progressively to find our own heart and to live from that centeredness. That's why we feel, again, you can measure it up to a certain point, reduction of stress, a reduction of anxiety, but we learn to live in a more centered way as this contemplative work becomes part of us. Making it part of us is the challenge. Meditation frees us then to find in our heart this mystery of ourselves in union with the mystery that is God. And it is then that we can begin to see the meaning of the language of the mystics, that God is the most desirable thing. God is the supreme reality. We can't make sense of that, especially in our secular world, in our secular language, until we have tasted the reality uh, of the heart in this sense. 
And if God is the most desirable and the great and the most precious thing, not a thing, but then it quenches our thirst and satisfies our insatiable desire with the experience of God, God's real self, not the substitutes that we create through fashion, through novelty, and through the cycles of desire. In a consumer culture like ours, we are condemned to repeat the cycle of desire uh, endlessly. And of course we become more and more dissatisfied with it as we go on. New and improved products, what's Apple bringing out? I said it myself the other day. I went into an Apple store and I said to the, to the guy, so, so what's new? What's coming next? You know? So in a consumer society we are we're bound to this wheel of fire actually like King Lear was that's what King Lear says we are um, I'm bound upon this upon this wheel of fire on which my tears do fall like scalding lead and this is the this is the deep malaise the deep dissatisfaction, the unhappiness that has accompanied our tremendous material and technological progress. Why aren't we happier? Because we've lost something that is the most important. The substitutes that we now create in this fantasy world of desire consumerism, advertising, everything depends upon demand and uh, production and demand, that the substitutes that we create out of this world of fantasy create ultimately not only deep human dissatisfaction, loneliness, and uh, the anxiety of, of discovering that life has no meaning, but it creates also a society that is living in continuous crisis, that is seeking more and more sensationalism in order to feel anything. And a society, a culture of imbalance, of folly, of bad leadership, ridiculous leadership, and of, of uh, violence. Now, the Gospel and the sayings of Jesus give us the assurance that He will not leave us, that the Spirit whom He will send will remain with us until the end of time, and will call to mind when you need it, the things that you have forgotten. It's wonderful reassurance. Whatever mess we get ourselves into, you know, we create this technological, this world of technological miracles, and yet we forget what health means and what happiness means 
what relationship means, what sexuality means. So when we get ourselves into these, into, into these uh, uh, crisis moments, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the friend, the one on our side, is, is still there. And perhaps it's only in these, often in these moments of crisis that we can, that, that we can be sensitive to its uh, presence. And I think maybe this is why there is, in a, often a confused way, but there is such a, an interest and such a movement towards, if not into, but towards the contemplative uh, wisdom in our very confused society. Meditation, however, can very easily become consumerized. This, this consumerism is a very mighty force. It can corrupt anything it touches. I was talking to an American doctor the other day and uh, she was, she, she was uh, describing uh, to me such sadness, the American medical system from the inside and how it has become uh, so uh, consumed by, by profit, by the insurance, huge, huge insurance lobbies. And uh, she said, you know, we, we have to pay for everything. Uh, and she said, even, even to register a patient at the, at the receptionist costs them a dollar to, to put that onto their software because the software is, is owned by some, some huge, I don't know, some huge uh, conglomerate. So uh, this is a, a mighty force that we have to reckon with. And even, or especially, I think, those movements in society or spiritual movements that that uh, offer us a way through and beyond this world of consumerism and, and idolatry, uh, these are the very things that can become corrupted in the process and turned into new commodities. That's the best way of dealing with them. You turn them like, a, like an espionage service, you, you turn them uh, against their real source and origin and you make them serve uh, your own side. So, meditation then does need to be taught and understood and shared probably in small groups, not as a major, you know, industry, uh, as an ascetical practice. It's ascetical. It's not going to be easy. It's not just about relaxation. And this contemplative uh, practice is ascetical. The word asasis doesn't mean painful, it actually means discipline or training, <coughs> exercise, like the Olympi Olympic athletes who trained for hours, for, 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 you know, for years and hours every day for years. Uh, this, they were ascetics. 
So we need to make our spiritual exercise just as important to us as the athletes do uh, to get their gold medals at the Olympics. Well, this is exactly what St. Paul says, isn't it? You've got to run in the stadium. You've got, you've got, to, you've got to run uh, in the Lord's race in, with the same passion that you, uh, you know, that the athletes in the stadium uh, do their training. They do it for a wreath that can never wither. It's a phrase that easily trips people up when they read it out in church. A wreath that will never wither. Uh, we do it for a prize that is eternal. But we need the same passion. You know, the Dalai Lama actually echoed that once when he, he's, I think it was during a few years ago, during some presidential campaign. And he said um, in the US, he said you could actually, he said he could see the candidates in the election process aging, you know, day by day. Uh, they, were, they were so dedicated, so 24-7 uh, involved in their campaign. He said, if we could bring that same level of dedication to our spiritual journey, he said, the world would be a very different place. So why is it an ascetical practice? Because it confronts and challenges the temptations that are always seducing the human being. These were the temptations that Jesus faced in the desert. Temptations of power, of magic and fantasy, and the temptation of pride. So we are const continuously facing these illusory uh, voices, these illusory uh, temptations seducing us. We need, uh, we need a continuous practice in order to be able to identify and reject them firmly as Jesus rejected them. Be awake, Jesus says. St. Hezekiah said that there are three, four kinds of wakefulness. He says the first is calling on Christ for help, which for him I think meant the, the Jesus prayer. So the continual, deeply embedded, rooted, uh, incarnated, call uh, from the heart so that it becomes part of us. Secondly, he said, being awake means the experience of stillness and silence in prayer. So remaining in that stillness and silence. It's easy to read about easy to talk about, maybe it's easy to do on a retreat, but to remain in it. Thirdly, being awake, he says, is, is, is achieved 
by memento mori, by the awareness of death. St. Benedict says the same thing, keep death always before your eyes. And in fact, all the great monastic traditions uh, emphasize this as a, an essential element of, of any kind of spiritual life. To remember man that thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. We used to say Ash Wednesday. And the fourth way he, he offers us of staying awake is examine your fantasies. So don't let yourself off the hook. Even if you are, even if you are controlled at times by illusion, fantasy, desire, uh, examine it and never, never lose the awareness of the difference between fantasy and reality. So, meditation opens us to the light. Because it opens us to the cracks within ourselves, but it gives us a steady, calm, and ultimately gentle discipline of, of centering our life in the healing process. And the light is love. When we love, we see everything differently. We see it better. We see the whole, the whole picture. We have a sense of the whole. We can see the horizon of our life, and we can see the foreground of our life in the light of love. But without the light of love, we can see only what is immediately before us. We become obsessive. We become reactive. And we see it without context or depth of field. We don't see it clearly. It becomes blurred. And worse still, of course, without the light of love, we see everything as if we were the real center of reality around which everything orbits. Everyone else in our world, all the events that take place, we see them primarily as uh, revolving around ourselves and how they influence us. The egocentric vision or the other-centered vision, that's our fundamental choice. And the difference is made by the, by the contemplative experience. What we mean by what, we t what I'm talking about is the contemplative consciousness. With the clarity and depth of field that it gives. So this is the gift of love. But love, as we experience it progressively, uh, reveals itself to us and explains itself to us. 
And one of the things we come to realize is that we are also wounded by love. And perhaps this is the primal wound. This is the first crack, the happy fault, the felix culpa. What separates us from uh, the animal kingdom and our way of seeing from the way animals appear to see is that the wound of love is directly related to our vulnerability and our fragility. As human beings, we are introduced to love through our vulnerability. Human, uh, human babies are the most needy uh, uh, animals in, 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 the, in the animal kingdom. Uh, they uh, apparently, uh, the, in order for, the, for, the, for, the, for a human to be reasonably capable of surviving on their own, we would need to stay in the womb for something like 18 to 21 months, not nine, not nine months. And the general explanation is, is that because our brains are bigger and the pelvis, the female pelvis is smaller, we have to be ejected into the world much earlier than would normally be desirable. But, so this makes us extremely fragile, extremely vulnerable. On the other hand, it means, all things being equal, we are receiving extraordinary doses of love and attention from the very first moment, ooh, 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 from the very first moment of our appearance in the world, we become this the recipient of endless care and attention. Let's hope that's the case, anyway. Uh, there are always faults in that. There's, in many cases, it's, it's inadequate. But nevertheless, we receive more care, more attention, more love than any other young. And we learn tremendously fast because our little brain, which is only a third of the size of what it's going to be as an adult, that this little brain is, of course, growing and, and being used and absorbing tremendous amount of information from the very first moment it enters into the sensible world. We absorb love insatiably. But it also prepares us, of course, for pain, for separation, for loss, not to say jealousy and possessiveness, which a child, a very young child, can feel very strongly as well. We can't get enough of love, but uh, we then suffer because we're not able to possess that love and control it 
as we instinctively would like. The human being can say the greatest of these is love. There is no greater value, no greater force than love, nothing more human than love. But we can only say it because we're wounded by love. We're both wounded and healed by love. Mid Midsummer's Night Dream by Shakespeare, um, Lysander is uh, speaking uh, uh, about love and he says, the course of true love never did run smooth. And he goes through in this conversation, this dialogue, he goes through all of the difficulties that lovers meet. Social differences, opposition from parents, social uh, so, social problems, uh, uh, differences of age, uh, war, death, sickness, external and internal. And then swift as a shadow, short as any dream, brief as the lightning in the calid night, so quick bright things come to conclusion. So, we never tire of being loved, or falling in love, or discovering love. Um, but we learn quickly that we cannot love easily. Our capacity to, to, to love, which means our need to love and to be loved, cracks us. And only deeper more selfless, pure love can heal those wounds. There's a beautiful little um, innocent poem by William Blake called The Little Black Boy and the Songs of Innocence and Experience in it. It's uh, uh, drawn from his, his reading of the of the, uh, the racial prejudice, the racial differences exposed in, in imperialism and uh, the attitude of the white to the black uh, worlds and so on. And uh, this, this is the poem, the, the little black boy. He has this, this great line, and we are put on earth a little space that we may learn to bear the beams of love. We are put on earth a little space that we may learn to bear the beams of love. Thus did my mother say and kissed me, and this I say to little English boy, when I from black and he from white cloud free and round the tent of God, like lambs we joy, I'll shade him from the heat till he can learn to lean in joy upon our Father's knee. And then I'll stand and stroke his silver hair 
and be like him, and he will then love me. The beautiful um, commentary on the uh, the political uh, the political the what should we say? I suppose the well the political uh, the, the meaning of the of the politics of empire and racism. So, and here we see again another expression of what we saw in the Gospel of Thomas, that the two will be one. And what will unite the opposition, overcome the opposition, the division, will be love, the beams of love. So human development is essentially an education in love. We constantly graduate from one level to the next through loss and rediscovery. We're sad to lose, but we are glad to grow. And the love that we learn to recognize at the end in other words, when we recognize the real nature, the true nature of love, when we're free from our egocentric desire to possess and control love, that the love we learn to recognize at the end is very different from our first encounter with it. At first, we think of love as a means of gaining what we desire and holding it, possessing it. Then soon we discover that doesn't work. We can continue repeating the same mistake for a few decades. And we, see, we come to see that this attitude to love contains the seeds of its own destruction. At first, we're tormented by the fact that love dies. And although we speak of love as eternal, psychologically, we have all experienced that love dies. And unless we let go of that self-centered fantasy aspect of love in time, the crack, the wound of love, becomes very deep. Wounded by love too often, some people determine never to be vulnerable again. They set up barriers. And we need contemplative wisdom and good parenting and good friends and good community to learn how to grow through our wounds, to overcome our fears, our cynicism, and then to embrace our own vulnerability. In other words, to stay open when instinctively we want to close up and protect ourselves. The very thing that Jesus did not do. The value of a contemplative practice, a spiritual art learned early in life, 
pearl beyond price. It's the best insurance, the best self-healing that education can give. And with that contemplative practice, in, as part of our developmental progression, so that we learn it early in life, and we're encouraged to make it part of our life, we learn to see that our cracks and our sins and the pains of loss are not ends, as we feel that they are, but they are actually new starting points. Love reinvents itself, is rediscovered in new ways, and the limits of love are uh, progressively uh, pushed back, expanded. And this is the love that Jesus shows us. This is the meaning of the gospel. The gospel is not primarily moralistic in that sense. If it is moralistic, it is, it is the morality of love. We see Jesus uh, loving his family and his friends, but also growing to the point where he loved like his father, like God, beyond all boundaries, shining on good and bad alike, kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, loving his enemies, strangers, and those rejected by men. And more mysteriously even, it is this love of Jesus that we we are given a glimpse of only, really, in the Gospels. It's just a few words, very short scriptures, really. You compare them with massive scriptures of other religions. But what we get is a little glimpse, and if it were only a historical reality, Jesus was just this great individual of the past, well, we wouldn't be really much better off. But the real meaning of it is, is that these scriptures that give us this little glimpse, very precious and sacred, but this glimpse of the love that is in Jesus is transmitted to us directly as a living, present reality through his breathing of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, the real presence. So the Christian understanding of uh, contemplation and of meditation as a way of contemplation is that as we become still, and silent as we learn to be awake, to watch, as we become ourselves, our true selves, as our fantasies and fears reduce their power to control us dwindles, 
in that process of the inner journey, we encounter this love firsthand, directly, that wounds and heals in the same moment and leads us into the death and resurrection that is our best way of understanding the divine life. John Main spoke of meditation as a way into the Paschal mystery. He said, every time you sit down to meditate, you enter into the dying and rising of Christ. As we take the attention of ourselves, and that means laying aside our thoughts, that's the exercise, that's the asceticism, that's the training. As we lay aside our thoughts, as we take the, we are taking the attention of ourselves, ourselves because all ideas and images in our mind will very quickly lead us back to ourselves. Because that's where they've come from. They've been formed, generated, thrown up into consciousness uh, from certain processes within ourselves, deeper than words, of course, but feelings, desires, anxieties, fears, compulsions, aspirations, uh, th this is what throws up, you know, this wonderful world, the Shakespearean world of, of thoughts and images. But these will very quickly lead us back to ourselves. It's by taking the attention off this stream of consciousness. This is asceticism. This is the desert. This is leaving self behind. This is poverty of spirit. This is the narrow path built into our life. Setting aside time in which we do that training, just as uh, talking to a minicab driver in London the other day, and uh, he, goes, he goes to the gym three times a week. He said if he didn't, he would just get completely out of condition. So he just has a discipline. He needs to make money to support his family. But he has to take time to go to the gym to stay healthy. So we need to make time for this asasis, this exercise. And as we take the attention of ourselves, we get many benefits from it, but even more, we discover the fruits of this experience, contemplation. We die to self. This is the meaning of renunciation. And the resurrection happens through the power of God, not through our own will. We, in the language of the Gospels, Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. He let himself die. He, he gave up his life, renounced himself. 
but he didn't raise himself from the dead. The resurrection happens through the power of God, and that's why we need faith. So let's end with this passage from the letter to the Romans. Your interests, however, he says, are not in the unspiritual, but in the spiritual. Because the Spirit of God has made his home in you. This has given us a new interest in life, a new set of priorities. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit shifted our inclinations. In fact, unless you possessed the Spirit of Christ, you would not belong to him. So there would be no relationship with Christ unless the Spirit of Christ was already in you. Otherwise, you're just studying him as an interesting figure from the past. Though your body may be dead, it is because of sin. Read for that illusion. But if Christ is in you, then your spirit is life itself because you have been justified, you have been healed. And if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then the one who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your own mortal bodies through his spirit living in you. And that's the, that's the foundation of Christian meditation, that's the foundation of all Christian spiritual uh, practice. And that's the, the great living doctrine. And as John Main says, meditation verifies the truths of your faith in your own experience. So these, you know, those are words, there are different translations of those words, and they remain pointing, you know, they, they point to something we can easily get stuck at the verbal level, the intellectual or theological level. We can easily just argue about different translations. But they are pointing us towards something. What? They're pointing us towards this experience. And it's the experience then that verifies the truth, the truths of this, of the gospel.